today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. If you were listening to Bill Kelly earlier, they were talking, he and some guests were chatting about this report that's out today that says one in seven people, Canadians, apparently are have or are driving while high. They don't see a problem with smoking pot and driving. This is, uh, this is a, a survey, a study that I think for most people would be considered troubling, but huge numbers of Canadians see little or no danger in driving while high or being in the car with someone who had just smoked pot. And worse, according to a story in the Globe and Mail, many people actually believe, get ready for this, many people believe they are better drivers when they're high, which if you follow the line of thinking, would lead you down the path to believe that they will then smoke before they drive to enhance their abilities. It's a strange world we're living in, I think. Uh, Here from the Globe and Mail, uh, they were talking to a number of people in a bar. Later in the evening, this is quoting from the paper, a 19-year-old engineering student fields questions about his own habits at the counter where chocolate is for sale. He would never drink and drive, he explains, and wouldn't have driven when he first started using cannabis. But six months in, he figures he knows his limit. Today, he says he wouldn't take a road trip without a joint. It's not dangerous, he claims. Among his evidence, he always stops at stop signs. Well, then, where's our question? We don't even need to talk about this anymore. Uh, Of course, there's evidence to prove this isn't necessarily true. But if people believe it, again, you can leap to not too implausible a conclusion that they may continue or may even do more of it. Kerry Schmidt is a sergeant with media relations with the Highway Safety Division of the Ontario Provincial Police. He joins us now. Kerry, thanks for doing this today. Hey, right on. Thanks for having me on. When you hear these things, and I'm sure you've been aware of this for a while now, but you start hearing these studies and you hear these anecdotes and you hear these stories. Are you like I am? Do you sort of slap your forehead and go, what is going on? Well, absolutely. And you hear these excuses of drivers who are actually proud of the fact that, yeah, they smoke and they smoke and they get high and they still drive because they think they're actually better drivers. They're all relaxed, they're calm, and nothing will bother them. Um, But the fact is, when you're going down the highway at 100 kilometers per hour, and emergency happens in front of you, you want to have the sharpest reaction time possible. Human human nature already has issues with the reaction times of a couple of seconds uh, historically, and you add some drugs to that, that's only going to make it worse. And people who think they're better drivers, uh, even your last example there, the guy, he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't smoke originally, but now he knows his limits. Well, okay, if there's limits, then he knows when he can't drive. But how can you objectively look at yourself when you are, when you are impaired? You can't look at yourself and see how impaired you are when you're good to drive or not, because at that point, you're already beyond the level of uh, what's a here, here is something that really, really blew me away is uh, earlier this morning on our sister station, AM 640, they were talking about this and they had people on the road behind the wheel calling in to the station, telling how they were actually high right now while they were driving. I mean, it, 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 it is, it is unbelievable. Not only the fact that they were talking on their phone as well, so they're breaking laws just left and right and center, but um, it, it just, it seems so antithetical to some people, and yet it seems to somehow make a lot of sense to others. Well, uh, it's, it's unbelievable that people think that they can do this and, uh, and be better drivers out there. They are not. And you look at the scientific, the medical evidence that shows that you, you use these uh, uh, drugs, and, and some people are using it medicinally, for, 
or prescriptions to ease the pain, to, to dull the aches and whatever they're dealing with. Uh, but that's also slowing them down. And the doctors will tell you, do not drive if you're under this medication because it affects your abilities. And, and people who have been smoking for years don't believe that. And you look at drivers, maybe who, who or drinkers, I'm sorry, drinkers who may drink uh, vodka all night long and they've been doing this uh, chronically for years and years. They may actually look sober. They may actually you know, appear to hold it together. And you get someone who uh, um, drinks occasionally, has a couple of beers, and they can't walk straight. They can't find their keys. They're fumbling. Their speech is slurred. Uh, the same thing goes with, uh, with marijuana and, and drugs. Uh, no matter how much you're, you're taking and how much you're used to it, it still affects your body. And the person taking vodka chronically is still impaired. Uh, they just don't realize because that's their new normal, but that is not what a sober driver looks like. Carrie, we've been told uh, that give or take, it's not exactly scientifically accurate, but give or take, it's about an hour per drink for an adult male to metabolize a drink and be able to clear it out of his system. Uh, You'd be better to wait longer than that, but nonetheless, that's roughly the guideline. Do we know what the number is for someone who has smoked a joint, which of course there's factors in this beyond just a joint is not necessarily a joint, but do we know what that time frame is? Well, no, and that's the, the strange thing is alcohol, the way it dissolves in the blood and uh, it becomes part of your bloodstream, uh, marijuana doesn't do that. It stores in your fat cells. It, it, it spikes up high, uh, your body will metabolize it, but then it may not metabolize all of it because it's being stored in your body uh, in, in the storage, in your, in your fat cells. And so uh, it, that marijuana could actually stay in your system for days, weeks, or even months at a time uh, before it actually is fully uh, cleared. So it, it's having an effect, and there's still a lot more work and study that needs to be done. But for us, impaired driving is impaired driving. And the criminal code is very explicit in that. No person shall drive a motor vehicle, whether if a person is impaired by alcohol or drugs. Let's get to that then, because this is what I really wanted to have you on for. I wanted to set it up, but this is why I really wanted to have you on, because we know that in two months, 10 weeks, whatever it is, uh, 10 weeks roughly, marijuana, cannabis is going to be legalized in this country. People will be able to smoke to their heart's content, and presumably then a number of them, either intentionally or otherwise, are going to be behind the wheel of a car having done this. Do the police have the ability, the facilities, the equipment, the knowledge, the training to do roadside tests to catch those who are driving high? Well, and we're training more officers all the time, but absolutely, we have those tools in place already. We have standard field sobriety testing officers that do roadside tests. They do the heel step turn. They check your eyes, the horizontal gaze, the stagmas. They'll do some cognitive skills, some balance skills. And based on those tests, the uh, officer will then determine whether or not they pass or fail, and if they fail, they will go off to a drug recognition expert. And this is a whole series of tests that are done in an attachment where the uh, subject is sent through uh, heart rate and blood pressure and eye tests and balance tests and cognitive tests and uh, urine tests and, and all sorts of uh, uh, blood pressure and so on. And based on the totality of that, the officers are trained in determining whether or not this person is impaired by what they're impaired, a drug, a stimulant, a depressant, or, or what kind of drug it is, and to what level. And those tests have been accepted through the court system. Convictions have been entered. And that's, uh, that's what we use right now for uh, drug-impaired drivers. There is no per se limit per, uh, as to what is the acceptable amount of THC, for example, that's allowed to be in your system and still drive. 
but if you're showing indicia of impairment, you will be charged with impaired driving under the criminal code. But by those standards, and those are the standards you have, so you're only doing what you can with what you have, but by those standards, a good lawyer is going to have a field day with some of those things. I mean, there are going to be some people who will plead guilty, but th- unlike a breathalyzer test, which gives you an actual number that you can take to court and say, this is a, we've tested this, we did the pre-testing, we know that it was balanced and calibrated, uh, th- this is going to, th- the door is going to be open for people to be able to fight this a lot easier. Well, that's why we have a court system out there. And sure, people can uh, can challenge uh, what the officer's uh, evidence is. But when it comes to alcohol as well, very often someone who's charged with impaired driving or drunk driving charge doesn't get charged with impaired driving, uh, but may get, get charged twice, one for over 80, over the legal limit, and one for impaired driving. So there's two different sections of the criminal code that speak to alcohol impaired driving. One of them is being straight out impaired. Uh, obviously, your indicia, your condition is not able to uh, uh, operate a motor vehicle. And the other one is the per se limit, that legal limit of what is allowed to be in your system. So you, I, I hope, uh, suspect that you have a full G license or, or higher G license. You're actually allowed to have a certain amount of alcohol in your system, uh, and and that's legal. So, um, But once you breach the threshold of 80 milligrams, that's a criminal code offense, uh, over 50 milligrams, you're going to breach the uh, the code of the Highway Traffic Act for a warrant range suspension, and you'll be charged for two different offenses. And drug right now is only impaired. We do not have the, the per se limit for how much THC you can have in your system and still drive legally. When you are doing a ride check or when you pull someone over uh, because you believe that they're impaired, there has to be some reason why you would either ask them to get out of their car at a ride program because you have suspicion about their behavior or, again, they're driving the way they're driving, that you would just be able to pull them over. Uh, I'm assuming the same thing would exist here, but beyond that, if cannabis is now legal, if someone had the butt of a joint that was stubbed out but a butt of a joint in the car, is that enough to uh, force them to get out and do the test? Well, it's just like finding an empty beer bottle in a vehicle. And I know they're talking about changing some of the uh, um, uh, perceptions as to an officer can make a demand for uh, alcohol or drugs at, at a roadside uh, without uh, suspicion. They can, you know, and I'm waiting to hear the, the final legislation on that. But right now, we need to have reasonable, reasonable suspicion that uh, the person in that vehicle has uh, consumed alcohol, and and as a result of that, we demand they provide a roadside screening test. And so uh, we need to have uh, the the smell or the indicia of impairment or the the alcohol coming from the driver's breath. Having uh, being at a bar and having someone pour alcohol all over your shirt, and you come home and you smell like booze, but you haven't haven't had a, a drop to drink, is uh, you know we we can't. We need to have that smell coming from the driver, from their breath. And if you're in a vehicle with five or six buddies that are all hammered and uh, you can't, and the, the vehicle just smells of booze or smells of marijuana, it, we need to, we're only looking at the driver. We're not looking at the passengers because you know, they may, in fact, be legal. It, there's, it's not illegal to be impaired or to be drunk, but it is illegal to drive a motor vehicle after being impaired. Here's the part where I, I, I kind of feel like you guys uh, and society, but the police especially, are running into the wind a little on this one. And let me go back to that same Globe and Mail article, and again, reading from it directly. According to a September 2017 survey commissioned by Public Safety Canada, a hearty portion of Canadians believe driving high isn't so bad. 
of the 2,132 respondents said they'd driven high, and of those, 17% said the influence of cannabis, quote, posed no real risks. Nearly 1 in 10 of all respondents believe cannabis makes a person a better driver. And then I go on, as you get younger in the 24 and under category, that number goes up significantly. It sounds like, in addition to everything else, you and other people in society have a massive PR effort that you also have to undertake here to convince people. Well, and that's that's part of my job as well, to try to educate the public and make them understand. You know, sadly, I, I wish you could all join me at every fatality crash that we go to and we see an impaired driver in there, uh, whether or not they're dead or not, uh, if they've killed somebody else. That has an effect on emergency responders. You see that and you become impassioned to realize that this is completely preventable. And people take drugs, people drink alcohol, to uh, to feel better, to ease the pain um, medically for all sorts of reasons, to, to change their mood, to alter their behaviors. Uh, but mood-altering drugs are not there as, uh, as a way of key, uh, making your uh, sense of, uh, of time and space that much keener. You're actually impairing yourself, and your reaction times do become slower with THC. And those slower reaction times, may make you feel like you're safer and you're more relaxed and nothing's going to happen and, and the world is, is a perfect little place there until that little child runs out in front of you. Yeah. And by the time you realize, like, wow, hey, look at that pretty little uh, ball bouncing across and the little girl or boy running after it with their bicycle. Oh, isn't that cute? Oh, I just hit that person. Now, what what have we just done? We, we're impaired and, and we see the world happening, maybe in slow motion, and... Uh, and but you're relaxed, but at least you're relaxed. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Carrie, yeah. I, gotta, I only have about 30 seconds left. I just want to ask you this. You're a young man still, I, I, and so this may be even before your time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, it took a long time, though. When I mean, there was a time when drinking and driving was not considered really socially taboo. It took a long time for that to really become completely unacceptable in society. And I'm wondering if we're facing the same thing, though, that this could be 10 or 15 or 20, almost a generational thing to snuff this out as well. Well, it could be. L- listen, we had we had the bootleggers smuggling booze back in the prohibition and in Canada, United States, and and uh, you know places that are just beginning to uh, have more alcohol in certain places. There's there's dry communities in in the past, and and that's changing. And we're trying to change those social attitudes and norms of what's acceptable and not. But you see an impaired driver, and you know how dangerous they are, and you wouldn't get into that vehicle with them. Uh, we certainly hope people understand that you get into a vehicle with a drug-impaired driver, you're putting yourself in just the same jeopardy as you are with, a, with an alcohol-impaired driver, and this cannot continue. And people drink and smoke together. The combinations can be unpredictable. Who knows what else is going into these, into these, these bodies. And in the end, you're an impaired driver. And when we look at drivers who are impaired and they finally see in court the video evidence of them driving all over the highway, stumbling over their feet, they have no idea. They actually yeah. think they're sober and safe, and they're not. So, OPP Sergeant Carrie Schmidt, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Not my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, a guest who was on here with me threw out one of those politically incorrect ideas, thoughts, concepts uh, that will make some people blanch. It's one of those topics that probably some people would say we shouldn't even be talking about. Well, we're going to. The suggestion was, the question was, 
Has the banning of carding as a police tool, has the banning of carding got something to do with the rise of gun violence in Toronto, Hamilton, Southern Ontario? Is there a connection between not doing that and more shootings? Now, you know, carding was banned in 2017. Gun violence this year is up 167% in downtown Toronto. Is that a coincidence or is there a correlation that we are, for reasons of trying to be not racist, not improper, that we are hurting ourselves to help ourselves or not finding a better way around it? You get what I'm saying. Let me bring in Ross McLean. He's a crime specialist. He's a security expert. He's a former Toronto police officer. Uh, Ross, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, good to join you. Uh, we both know that this is one of those topics that a number of people, their heads are going to spin around that we're even raising this thing. Uh, but let's get right to it. Let's just dive into the deep end. Is there any possibility that these two things, the increase in gun violence and the cancellation of carding, could be related? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely uh, They're absolutely connected you know and and the basis for a lot of this is what is carding has been wholly misrepresented um, to the public it's hard for them to understand what it actually originated from and the other part that twisted everything around was the Toronto Star did a statistical thing that somehow proved that there's racism involved even though their original study said right off the top that said this isn't really scientific and there's all kinds of mistakes in it and We can't really say that's what it does, but that's what the public has been fed, that the police can't do it and that it's a racist-based problem. All right. We hear the word carding. Everybody has heard the word carding by now. I'm not sure, though, that everybody exactly knows what it means. And for some, this is going to be repetitive, and I apologize, but for others... Uh, Ross, what is... Explain how carding actually works practically for an officer on the street. Yeah, it's, it's been around since forever uh, with police officers doing it and the way it works it's not as the public keeps on hearing the random stopping of racially profiling people on the street to take down their information that's not at all how it works I, I will give this caveat the Toronto police made a mistake the supervisors in putting quotas on it so that the police had to go out and get a whole pile of them that created problems but the actual act of carding would work like this I might get a call to the back of a high school for some kids fighting or something like that and broken bottles. You roll around with the police car, you find six kids there. You sit, you talk to them, what are you doing here? How come you're not in school? You're not going to charge them, but you get their identification. So because they're out there causing trouble in the neighborhood, you would submit a card where they would put down the information, their name, where you encountered them, what they were doing at the time. Now, that goes into a file that maybe never gets looked at, or maybe it does. If we find out that earlier that day, that school was broken into and a lot of stuff was stolen out of it. So it's used for intelligence purposes like that. But where the information is gathered, generally speaking, is from a police um, engagement based on a call or an investigation. The, the criticism, though, of this, or at least one of the concerns, is uh, that many of the stops, many of the carding... Many of the cards were gathered not from gathering a bunch of kids who were creating a problem, but just from stopping people who may have looked suspicious or anything else that they weren't actually doing anything wrong. Yeah, and the other misconception with that 
And I'm not saying that there weren't mistakes. Like I said, when they started putting in the quotas, that was the biggest mistake the police ever made. They took it out of the hands of the cops. They had to go out and get names. Otherwise, they weren't going to get their quotas and they get bad performance reviews. So the problem was there. But when police stop you, a lot of people say, oh, the police officer stopped me for no reason. They don't know that the reason the police officer stopped them. They don't know if they stopped them under a law for doing something. Like, for instance, if you're walking on uh, certain properties that the police have trespassed to property permission to go after you on, then they can do it. They're perfectly entitled to ask you for something. If you're uh, driving a car, if you, make, if you do an offense on a bicycle against the Highway Traffic Act, the police are entitled to ask you. Now, to the average person, they might say, I was doing nothing wrong. But they don't know uh, necessarily why the police stopped. But doesn't that, again, speaking for those who would be against this, doesn't that open the door to a possibility that a police officer who's subconscious, who's white or whatever, subconsciously believes that black people are more inclined to be doing something wrong? They're looking for that. That, again, is the criticism. Well, it's, it's a, you can call it a correlation, uh, but not all correlations, of course, are causations. And as I said, you know, the big issue is uh, when we have high crime areas, of course, and you do have some areas, obviously, that are very uh, racially filled with people and the crimes go on in those areas. So you'd be stopping more of those people. But once again, if when you look at statistically, people go back and find the original Toronto Star study. They can look it up. It's online and find the information. You find out that it's not. It's not at all jigged correctly. They didn't have the information to do the work. So, you know, I think what needs to happen is it needs to be reinstituted, sans the quotas. So no more of this quota stuff and very strict rules about how it's done and why it's done and how the information is collected. But make no doubt about it. It leads to a rise in gun crime now because people know that cops aren't going to engage them. Well, the Peel Regional Police Chief... Uh, said just about a month, Jennifer Evans is her name, just about a month ago, she said, and here's a quote of hers, this has empowered criminals who think officers won't stop them. They now are more confident they'll get away with carrying guns and knives. We've seen an increase in violent crime over the past year. Now that quote was taken to task by many, many people who disagreed with her. So let me go to this, uh, Ross, because we know there is tons of anecdotal evidence on both sides of the fence on this one. The anecdotal evidence is all over the place. Do we have any actual evidence, any proof that carding works beyond just police officers saying, yeah, it helps us? Yeah, I was on the job. I know about it. And I go to people and I've seen investigations and I talk to them. In fact, one of the top investigators here, I won't name what squad he's on and what he does. He says there is not an investigation he has done where he hasn't gone to that to get aid and help in investigating and solving crimes. Is it the happens I- all the time. So is the idea that if, okay, so someone saw me, a police officer sees me and decides to stop me and ask what I'm doing and does a card on me, is the idea that if I know, not only are you stopping me, so if I have a gun, I'm probably going to get caught or may, but if I know that the police have my name and my information now, I'm less likely to do something? Uh, not not necessarily, but what it, the way it does work is if the police are doing good work in the community and they know everybody, like it, it hasn't been this way for a while because the policing has been too much reactive and more about answering calls than preventing crimes. But there was a time, and there still is in some places, where the police could walk down the street and they know the family members, they know the kids, they know the kids that are in trouble, the ones with the mother's sake, can you help me with this guy? And they can see when they're getting off the rails. They know who they associate with, which is another good 
uh, use of the carding information. So let's go back to you again. You're driving in a car, and the car happens to be being operated by a guy who has a criminal record. Now, maybe you know it, maybe you don't. But if I end up getting your information and putting it down, I know that you've associated with someone like that. So let's say that guy goes out and commits a murder somewhere sometime soon. You know, I will be going to look to speak to the associates of that person. Where do you know him? When did you last see him? And it helps. It helps. I, I Clearly, uh, you are supportive of this and you believe in it. And that's good. Uh, that's fine. Would you acknowledge, though, that the, again, with the critics of this, that there is a possibility, there is a, uh, it is easy for it to be abused if somebody wanted to abuse it. This is a system that could be abused if officers, if people wanted to do that. Any, any police power can be abused. And in fact, I am a supporter of it, but I'm also the person who came out in the media and supported erasing when we found the proof of quotas uh, being used. I mean, we, I knew the quotas were out there, but found memos from the police saying they had quotas about doing that. And that's where it became improper. So, I mean, I, I'm certainly going to speak out when there's abuses of it. But the fact that it's been taken away because there were abuses of it, uh, I don't think should negate uh, getting reengaged with it. Because it's what's causing us so much trouble uh, with the violence on the streets, carrying of knives, carrying of guns. How, how directly, how do you draw the straight line between those two things? Because I talk to intelligence officers. Okay. I go to homicide scenes, I go to shooting scenes, and they will tell you that post the carding, they treat almost every one of the, let's put it into the gangster type category, or in the tough areas of town, they're treating everybody now like they're carrying. That, that's how they're treating them, because they're finding that they are. They watch them, they see them, they photograph them, they video them, they wiretap them, old clothes people get next to them. They know that they're carrying. So that's, that's how I know that. Okay, so is there a way then, if we believe, if some people believe, if you believe that this is something that really could help and really could help to cut down on the gun violence, is there a way to reintroduce this? that builds in safeguards to make sure that this could not be used with racial quotas or to racially profile people? Is there a way, is it possible to build a carding system that doesn't have those issues built in, that you could prevent those absolutely? It's possible. It's going to be very difficult. In fact, you know, when I, when I spoke a little bit, and I've listened to uh, Mike McCormick on the issue, the head of the Toronto Police Association, they're, they're taking the tack that, okay, if the government banned it, we're not going to bother with it anymore. And so we, they tell all the police, don't bother doing any carding. Don't bother doing any of that work. That's not how they want us to police. And so the police just stopped doing that work. So, and that's what's resulted in a lot of the problems that we have now. So can it be done? Yeah, it's going to be difficult uh, to get it done. Uh, there needs to be a semblance of truth uh, going on about how it's done and why it's done. And as I said, the, the you know, the, on the one side of it, I keep on hearing the stories of this has never solved one crime. All I can tell you is I've spoken. To, I, I know people where it solved crimes all the time, but yet that still gets spun out by, by some on the other side. You so. would almost, when you said we have to get rid of the quotas, I'm thinking we'd almost have to keep the quotas. And here's what I mean by that, Ross, is that you would have to then make sure that a, a proportionate number of people from each different racial group were stopped and had the carding done 
to ensure that there was no allegation or no sense that this was being abused against one group or the other. You'd have to make sure as many white people, Caucasian people were done relative to their percentage of the population as black people or Asian people or whatever else. So here's the problem with that. What that is, and this was the basis of what on the STARS study, it's essentially a statistical lie, right? You can't say that the police, that crime is committed across every demographic equally, because that's not how anything takes place in nature. Everything takes place based on other demographics and other things that influence. Otherwise, we might as well say, hey, we haven't carded any senior senior citizens lately at the home, <laughs> right? So these statistical lies get in the way of you know trying to do things trying to do things right. But again, arguing the other side for just a second, yep. there would be those who would say, well, the reason that we have more people charged of certain demographics is because we're paying more attention and laying more charges against them because we are looking for it with them. Right? You know, well, there isn't a charge in the criminal code that I'm aware of that has to do with your race. Right? What there are charges are is based on behavior. You're charged with doing something specific. The crime is very specific to the time, location, what you did and what the evidence is. And that's what goes before a court. So it's, uh, you know, and the other part is too, I mean, I have to tell you, I go around talking to police officers all the time I see them. I'm hard-pressed. Now, this almost sounds reversed, like they play the other side of it. I'm hard-pressed to come across many white cops everywhere they go, you know, these days. There's, there's all kinds of police officers who are on the job now, all kinds of backgrounds, and they all work together. And I'll just tell you that, you know, I spoke to one guy I know who, who I helped get on the job a long time ago, and I asked him, how's it going with the racism stuff? And he told me, he said, Ross, if we had a guy on our shift who was racist, we'd fix him. We'd deal with him because we're not going to work with someone like that because you can't work with someone like that. So we need to get back, I think, to solving crime. You know, and the truth is the people of color, unfortunately, go back. I tell you right now, go look at the Toronto Police Homicide Squad. Uh, they're paged there for unsolved, unsolved homicides. Look at the color of the victims. Look at the color of the victims. They're on, they're on the bad side of the receiving end of this right now. We have had lots of discussions in recent months and years about the concept of uh, lapel or chest cameras on police officers that people would say, well, if you put this on the police, we can make sure they don't abuse the system. Of course, the flip side also works that the police could show that they are doing the right thing if someone improperly accuses them of misbehavior. It works both ways. Would lapel cameras or chest cameras, would they allow for the return of carding if we believe in it, because it would then show whether the officer had done it with proper reason. Yeah, well, that's part of it. And, you know, and to that end, if if it's to go that way, you know, there needs to be, you know, sufficient detail as the reasons as to why the information was taken down and where it was. So, for instance, I mean, all the police are really doing is they're really doing what citizens would do. They're empowered to do what citizens would do. So if you were out driving around your neighborhood and you saw three people huddling in the back behind a garage where there's been a lot of garages broken into over time, would you go up and talk to them? Would you want the police to go up and talk to them and say, hey, what are you doing here? Do you live here? You know, that's what you'd want them to do. So that's what we need the police to be doing now to help keep these communities safe. All they're doing now is driving around waiting for radio calls of shots fired, somebody stabbed or something's going on, then they're driving in and dealing with it. But I'd much rather see it prevented. Just before I let you go, Ross, um, whether or not we think it would help, wouldn't help, whether we agree, disagree, whatever it is, 
I'm not entirely sure that an issue like this is going to be reinstated, though, because I'm not entirely sure that even if you could, even if Ross McLean or anyone else could make the most compelling case possible, I'm not convinced that there is a government out there that wants to even touch this hot button issue with a 10-foot pole. This is one they would love to run away from and just leave alone, right? Right. And let me tell you, the last government that was in, they're the ones who really messed this up. Their new rules on carding, Scott, essentially became reverse carding. So the police, I go into a neighborhood where I know there's gangsters, I know there's guys there who have been out on murder before, I know there's people being investigated for violent crime. I want to walk up and talk to them. I have to caution them, tell them they don't have to talk to me, give them a card with my name and badge number on it so they can threaten my family or lay a complaint against me before, the, before I can start doing my job. And I'll tell you, there have been police officers who've had their lives threatened because the bad guys find out what their, what their name is. So... You know, it's uh, the politics, you're right. The politics are going to make it very, very tough. And every time you get politics in policing, that's where it gets tough. It always gets tough. Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was reading a piece in the Globe and Mail this week that I got to tell you was on my list of Top three thought-provoking, fascinating, a little bit unusual ideas. And I said, we have got to get that topic on the show before we're done this week. And we have. Uh, We are living longer now is the basic premise of where we begin with this. We're living longer. People are generally not, for the most part, dying right before they get to retirement or after. We have long lifespans. Some people are living to 100, more people. We have a lot more people living 80, 90, 100. Uh, Now, that raises some issues. What do you do with all that retirement time? I know it's great. You say, ah, I do whatever I want. Well, sure. But people are running out of money. It's tough. You got to find money. You got to be able to continue to live. In the meantime, up front, the job market. Because people are holding on to jobs now, the job market is way more competitive. If you're healthy at 70, why quit? Keep going. That's what a lot of people do. It's making it tougher and tougher to find jobs. So what is the answer to all this? What's the answer to people who mm, the money is getting tight as they get older and the people at the beginning can't get jobs because they're still holding on to it? Well, here's a suggestion. The idea is that we put off getting full-time employment until we are 40. Yes, 40. It's an idea that I grant you is a bit outside the box, maybe more than a little bit outside the box, but it is an idea that I wanted to discuss because I found it fascinating. The person behind this suggestion, the author of the piece, her name is Linda Nazareth. She is a principal of Relentless Economics and Senior Fellow for Economics and Population Change at the McDonald laurier Institute. Linda, thanks for doing this today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Scott. Uh, I'm sure that I'm not the first person to point out to you that when people read this, they probably said, wait, what? 40 years old? Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? I can't be the first person who has expressed that to you. No, people find it uh, a bit out there. And I have to say, I'm not saying this is the one solution. Uh, I just find it uh, interesting at this point in time when so many things are changing to, as you say, think out of the box. What could we do that would make it work for a lot of people? And I can't take credit for this idea. It comes from uh, California, actually. Where else? From Stanford. <laughs> There's a professor there called Dr. Laura Cartinson who does some work with the Stanford Institute of Longevity. And what they're basically looking at is the fact that people are living these really long lives. And once you change up 
the uh, the assumption that people are done at a certain age, what other assumptions should you change to? Um, that's something that goes along with a lot of the other research I've done, which is, you know, we don't have one life, one work life anymore. We have a lot of things going on. This is a theory, but let's play along with a theory for a minute. Let's explore this theory for a minute. How would, in this concept, how would this work? Well, I guess there's different ways to make it work. Uh, one thing you could think of is pre-40, you're getting your education, you're raising your family, you are working, maybe not at your full-time forever career, but you're coming in and out of the workforce, and then you find what you want to do when you go out at full blast uh, later in your life, and maybe you go and you end later. And let's just say this is one of a series of alternatives. Other people may follow the more conventional pattern. Uh, some people will come in full blast and take sabbaticals and come back in full blast. And we already do this. I mean, let's remember, some of us stay home with kids for some period of time. Others travel. Uh, it's getting to be more common with the millennial generation to say, I don't necessarily want to be at this job forever. Maybe I'm going to work here for a while and then I'm going to take a break and come back. Um, in the tech world, it's not uncommon at all to take contracts and work intensely for a period and then perhaps not work for a while. So we've already changed it up quite a bit. I, I think the part that's radical here is suggesting that careers could start later mm -hmm. than, than we think of them. Well, clearly... And, and there's a lot of things, I, and I want to hit on some of the hot button things. And again, I know you've thought and been asked and, and heard of all, all these things. I'm not going to probably be able to throw anything at you that you haven't heard before, but let's start with this one. The idea of, as you just described it, doing some things and getting your education and getting your life sort of together and then finding the thing you really want to do and then going hard at it. Don't we, by the time we hit 40, 45 into our fifties, isn't that when we're I hate to say it, but beginning to not be quite as energetic and not wanting to go as hard at it, we're kind of slowing down a little bit at that point, aren't we? Well, let's hope that that changes, Scott, because if you're going to try and live to 90 or 100, you don't want 50 years of it being, you know, where you're really winding True. down, right? True enough. Uh, and I have to think that if we're talking about these longer lifespans, uh, we're talking about better health, too. I mean, it's fascinating to me that there is a British study that says babies born today, if you look at them, one-third to two-thirds will live to the age of 100. That's crazy. That's that is. changing everything up, right? That is now, are we, and, and I don't know if this is something you would know, but it, it, actuarial tables will tell us that by the time you hit 65, 70, 75, your chances of having an illness or having something health-wise being an issue goes up dramatically. Is there evidence that while the kids, babies today are getting older and older and living to be 100, does their health, do the health problems get pushed back as well that what we normally have had at 70, is that now at 80 or is that now at 90 or are we still hitting those problems at 70? And that's a little bit outside of my expertise, but I do know that once you hit these benchmarks, uh, your life expectancy gets better. Like if you look at it from birth, you may say your life expectancy is 80, but if you make it to 80, your life expectancy is not zero. You have however much left from there. And, you know, we know that people are able to leave live healthier lives. We're not all doing it, but hopefully we're getting closer to the place where where we are. And, you know, there are these technological advances we are on the uh, the brink of, mm. the fourth industrial revolution where we're bringing together cyber systems and robotics and everything else. And I would hope that one of the things we get out of this is healthier lives. But again, this is, you know, this is something that will happen over a period of decades. Well, we just, you know, we just saw at the Blue Jays game the other day, a little girl who was throwing out the first pitch with a hand printed from a 3D printer. So I guess anything is, uh, anything is possible these days, I guess. Um, I guess, and I bet she had a smartphone too, right? Which, uh, I, yeah, probably running the hand. I mean, who 
knows how that would work. Um, okay, another issue that a lot of people will point to, and this is, pr- I would think this is probably the number one issue, and this is probably the number one thing you've heard. If we're not going to be working in our career full-time till we're 40, if we're going to, I think you used the word dip in and dip out of the job market as we get our family and everything, who's going to pay for us to eat and live and have a home and clothes and all the rest of the stuff until we actually get engaged and get into that career? Well, this is where it kind of falls apart for me too, Scott, because when I first read some of these theories, it's like, yeah, but you know, I'm an economics person. This has to work. Uh, And the fact is people are making some of these arrangements work already, whether they want to or not. Uh, If you are in a household where your partner has a more stable job, you can have uh, a freelance career, right? We see this in media quite a bit. Um, If you are uh, studying, you could have government support. And I think there's a case to be made, not just to hand out money necessarily, but to realize that we are going to need certain skills and uh, there is technology coming around and perhaps there is a need for for more government support for certain kinds of education. Um, And then there is, this is not my favorite at all, but some people do put this out there, the proposal that perhaps we need to think of a basic income. And as I say, I don't think that one's really a a winner for Canada at this point, but it's part of the discussion too, that if we're going to have volatile lives, and volatile careers and perhaps interruptions in employment, maybe there's another role for government. And, you know, again, when I say that maybe you should start thinking about working at 40, it's not all com- from choice either, right? Let's remember that what I'm really saying is we're getting away from this conventional life and conventional mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's happening whether or not we want it. Yeah, and and the basic income, and certainly this last week or two uh, here in Hamilton being one of the places that had the basic income program that was, that was stopped, it's been a talking point for sure. The difference, I guess, between that and this, and why I would agree with you on that point, society might be able to support the people who are needing basic income as a social assistance kind of thing. But if we make this so that everybody gets social assistance uh, and basic income, I'm not exactly sure where the money for that comes from. I'm not sure that is a practical position because it's no longer than a prop someone up to help them in a tough time. It's a, Hey, everybody gets it. Let's go from there. That's a tougher one. It is a tougher one. First of all, if you're going to give it to people and not tax it away, well, that's really not the point of it. I mean, you can have somebody say, well, it's $12,000. I'm going to take a holiday. And that's really not the intent. Uh, you could tax it away. And that's one possibility to say we're going to give it to everybody. However, if you make above a certain amount, you have to pay it back. I don't love that approach at all because it's really a disincentive to work. If you say, look, if you make uh, the first 12000 free, so you might get people not Uh, deciding not to work. Um, And as well, what I really don't like about the basic income is it kind of writes people off. It's often put out there by those in Silicon Valley or those who just believe that technology is going to destroy jobs. And you have to figure that some people are not going to be able to ever work again. And I find that a very depressing way to look at the situation. So, uh, again, not a fan. And, yes, in terms of the expense of it, it's crazy. Uh, You would have to make huge trade-offs, say, okay, we're going to send out this money, but let's close all the libraries or uh, let's – everyone's now responsible for their own health care or something, because it's really hard to make the numbers work. So again, not a big fan. However, I do uh, agree that there's this big issue of income volatility, which is to say, maybe you'll make the same amount over a year or close to it, but it may be that you'll work for three months and then not work for three months and then work for six weeks and not work for four months. And people aren't used to that. We're not used to managing our money like that. So we have to figure out how to give ourselves a basic income. 
or government has to help us be educated on that or or some or something has to happen because that is not a model that I think Canadians are familiar with. Or, or well, no, no. And that's and, and certainly I mean, that kind of thing, if you're going to work for three months or off for three months, whatever else. Uh, there are uh, there are offices, there are companies that would say, how exactly am I supposed to operate a business when people are coming and going for three months at a time? There's no continuity that we don't have the same people. It would make a lot of, we'd, you used a phrase, I believe in your piece that we would, um, this would require a significant mindset alteration. I, I think that's maybe a huge understatement. This would require a, a just a chasmic change to how we think of things. Yes, absolutely. The uh, starting at 40 thing would, yeah. and as well, the idea that people work uh, casually. You know, you know, I sometimes use the word work instead of job, Scott, because I think that's pretty much how it's turning out for a lot of people right now. You mentioned the managing thing. Yeah, I talked to a lot of business groups, uh, a lot of conferences about this, and you know, companies are struggling with this. However, it's often to their advantage to buy the talent that they want and buy the work that they want and not necessarily take people on full time. And they're not uh, individuals aren't always crazy about that. Companies aren't always crazy about it either because sometimes you want the person on your team, you want them there for longer. However, there's a, a cost trade-off that makes it uh, make more sense sometimes just to buy what you need as you need it. So we're in that transition right now. And I think part of that transition is that people will have breaks, voluntary or not voluntary, from the labor force. Of all the things that you said, and again, there are people who are going to be looking at this saying, this is nuts. There's people who are going to be saying, this is really great. The one thing that I think almost everybody will agree on, regardless of where they fall on this, is that with technology changing and everything else, we are seeing jobs disappearing. We are seeing careers and and, uh, styles of jobs just completely vanish off the map. We are going to have to figure something out. I don't know if the wait till you're 40 is the way, but we're going to have to figure something out for people. We're going to have to figure out a lot of things. Now, it's confusing to people because we just got the jobs numbers from Statistics Canada today, Scott, and you know, we have 54,000 jobs added. We have the Ontario unemployment rate well under 6%, and that looks that's the best in four decades. So it's like, well, everything's fine, right? And it's fine partly because the demographics are in our favor. We don't have huge growth in the number of job seekers uh, compared to demand. It's fine because we're at the top of an economic cycle. And I think we do forget that things are changing. Um, I think sometimes we do forget that numbers mask that not everybody's in exactly the, the employment situation they want to be in. So we're definitely in transition. There's a lot of things happening right now. And I, I think it is the time to have these discussions. And you know, starting work at 40 may not be the solution, but let's at least put everything on the table. Linda Nazareth, you can read her piece. It's in the Globe. It's online. Should we consider delaying full-time work until 40? Uh, If you get past the shock of the headline, it is well worth a read to go through. It is a good thought-provoking piece for a discussion point. Linda, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.